see things differently. Some people say the glass is half empty, others say it's half full, and they're both looking at the same glass of water, and yet they don't see it the same way. Does it matter? Does it really matter if they're not seeing the same thing? I think it does. Because your perspective, your view of things determines your response. For example, let's imagine a young couple, they've rented a cottage for the weekend, three days in the Pocono Mountains, where they have a chance to just kind of get away from it all and relax and have fun. First day there, the husband is standing in the living room and he's looking out a window and he sees a swimming pool. So he yells to his wife and he says, hey, I got an idea. Let's change our clothes and get some exercise. His wife is standing in the kitchen when he says this, and she's looking out a window too, but it's a different window. And from her point of view, she sees a tennis court. So she yells back and says, hey, that's a great idea. Let's do it. Let's change our clothes and get some exercise. So what happens? She dresses for a tennis match. He puts on swimming trunks. Now, they both agreed to the very same statement. Let's change our clothes and get some exercise. And yet they responded to that statement in two different ways. Why? They weren't looking out the same window. The way we see things, it really matters. If you're not looking out the right window, you're going to get the wrong impression about life. Let me give you another example. My Aunt Nellie, my great Aunt Nellie, she lived in Boulder, Colorado. And when I was a little boy, we'd go out there and visit her occasionally. Really sweet lady. Always so nice. But I noticed uh, when we were out there in Colorado, whenever Sunday came around, she didn't go to church like we did. She was a part of a different religion. It was called Christian science. I talked to my dad about this. My dad said, David, there's nothing Christian about the Christian science movement, and there's nothing scientific about their faith. So why they call it Christian science, I don't know. And it made me think of that cereal I used to eat as a little boy. I loved to eat grape nuts. But there were no grapes and there were no nuts in that cereal. So why they called it grape nuts, I had no idea. I ate it anyway. Well, that's how it is with the Christian science movement. It was started or founded back in the 1800s by this lady by the name of Mary Baker Eddy. And she taught all her followers that you don't use doctors, you don't need medical care. Whenever you get sick, no matter what the illness, you just pray and you're going to be healed. She also taught her followers there's no such thing as heaven, no such thing as hell. That's just a state of mind. It's not a place that you actually go to. And she taught that death is not real, it's just an illusion. Well, Mary Baker Eddy got sick. She got pneumonia. And in spite of all her prayers, she never recovered. And she died. And her death was no illusion. And when I learned all that, it became obvious to me as a kid that anybody who was a part of that religion was looking at life through the wrong window. And I watched so many times when so many different members of my family would sit down at the table with my great Aunt Nellie, and they would try to explain this to her. And she'd just smile and be really polite. But she would never change her mind. And as a boy, that just troubled me. Why would my Aunt Nellie be a part of a religion when there were no facts to support her faith? That was just a mystery to me. But from that experience, I learned something really important. It really does matter what you believe. You may believe the brakes on your car are good, but you haven't checked them in the last two years, and you may be trusting something you shouldn't. You may believe the food at the restaurant where you eat this afternoon is really good, but have you ever seen the kitchen where they prepare that food? Or you may believe that some big fat guy dressed in a bright red suit is going to squeeze down your chimney this next Christmas and give you all kinds of presents. And you may believe this with all your heart, but you've got to ask yourself this question. Does your faith match the facts? Does your faith match reality? 
Now, here's the reason I'm mentioning all this. This is the very concern that is on the mind of the Apostle Paul here in Acts chapter 17, as for months and months he travels all around the land of Greece. He visits the cities of Thessalonica, then Berea, and then the city of Athens. And in all three places, he's trying to teach this principle. We know this because he wrote about it in the very first, one of the very first letters he ever wrote, the letter to the Thessalonians. He starts out there in Thessalonica, he teaches them, and then as he traveled for the months after that, the weeks and months after that, in the other parts of Greece, that principle is still in his mind. He's thinking about that letter he's going to write back to them. And the principle is this, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 21, test everything, put it to the test. And then after you've done that, hold on to what is good, reject what is evil. In other words, don't be gullible. Don't believe everything you hear. Check everything out. Put it to the test. Well, if you're living there in first century Greece, man, you hear that word test. It's the Greek word dokimatso. And when you hear that word, man, your ears perk up. You're familiar with that word. That word's being used a lot because at this point in time, there's a scandal going on, a big cheating scandal. It had to do with money. And anytime you're talking about people and their money, you're talking about something that's important to them. Here's how the scandal worked. You need to appreciate their money was not like our money. Back in the ancient world, they had no banks, no paper money. All their money was made out of metal. So they would take that metal, metal, gold, silver, bronze, whatever, and they would heat it up until it came into a liquid form. Then they'd pour that liquid into different size molds, different size containers for the different size coins that they wanted to make. And then once that metal, that gold, silver, bronze, once it cooled and solidified, now you could pick the coins up and begin to use them. So in the ancient world, each one of those coins was literally worth its weight in gold or silver or whatever metal was made from. Well, that's when this trend got started called shaving coins. In fact, when the Apostle Paul gets to the city of Athens here in the very last part of Acts chapter 17, there were already, already 80 different laws in place to try to stop and protect people from this practice of shaving coins because there were so many people involved in this scam. Here's how it would work. People would take especially the gold and the silver coins and they'd shave off the outer edges, thus reducing the size of the coin and reducing the value that it had. But they did this so slightly, so subtly, you couldn't notice it with the naked eye. Well, after you do this with a bunch of coins, you develop quite a pile of shavings. I mean, all these specks in gold and silver begins to really build up, add up. So after a while, you take that massive pile of precious metal, you put it in a bag, you take it down to the marketplace, you sell it, and you make a nice profit for yourself. Not only that, now they come back and they take those shaved coins, because most people are not going to recognize this, and they begin to use it in the marketplace like it's still the real deal. It's still the right size, right weight, still has the same value, and it doesn't. And so now as they're trading in the marketplace, again, they're making a bargain for themselves. Well, after a while, these men and women who are running those shops there in the marketplace, they begin to catch on, and to protect themselves from being cheated, dakimatsu. They begin to put things to the test, meaning they would buy, they would purchase some of those original molds, those containers from which the coins were first made, and now they'd use them in their shops. So if a customer came along and handed them a coin, hey, is this the real deal? Right size, right weight, dakimatsu. Let's put it to the test, and they'd pick up one of those molds. And say, Let's see if this fits. Let's see if this matches. Let's see if this coin is really what it's supposed to be. Now, again, I mention all of this because that's exactly what the Bereans do to the Apostle Paul. The middle part of Acts chapter 17, Paul comes to the town of Berea and he starts talking to them about Jesus. Well, they've never heard of Jesus before. And not only that, Paul makes this, this really bold claim that this Jesus is the Messiah. Whoa, wait a minute, Dakimatsu. Let's put that to the test. 
And so they pick up their mold, their scrolls, their scripture. Hey, it's back here in the Old Testament where we first read about those prophecies about the coming Messiah, describing what he would do, what he would be like. Paul, if this Jesus that you're preaching about, if he's the real deal, let's see how he fits. Let's see if he matches up with what we read here. So look at how they do this. Acts chapter 17. We're going to start with verse 10. First nine verses of Acts chapter 17, Paul's been in the city of Thessalonica trying to plant a church and develop a ministry there. And at first everything goes really well. But then some enemies pop up and they start a riot, literally a huge riot. Whole city, it's a big place. The whole city is in turmoil. And because of the legal action they take, now Paul and Silas have to leave town. That's why we read the first part of verse 10. As soon as it was night, the believers in the city of Thessalonica, they sent Paul and Silas away. And they send them away to a specific place, Berea. It's 50 miles away, but it's off the main road. I mean, it's way off the beaten path. It's way up there in the mountains. Because the believers in Thessalonica are thinking, hey, if the enemies ever decide to track them down, that's probably going to be the last place they think of trying to look for them. I mean, there's been trouble for Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke there in the town of Philippi. Last part of Acts chapter 16, now there's trouble and turmoil again here in the city of Thessalonica. So the believers are thinking to themselves, maybe if we send Paul and Silas to a place like Berea in this way out of the way place, maybe at last they might have a peaceful ministry there. So arriving in the town of Berea, they, that is Paul and Silas, they went to the Jewish synagogue. And they're going there not just to worship with their fellow Jews, but Paul is this famous rabbi from the land of Israel, and he might just get an invitation to speak. And if he gets that kind of an invitation, you know what he's going to do. He's going to talk about Jesus. Well, that's exactly what happens. And when Paul gets up to speak, he does the same thing he does other places. We have an example about it back in verses 2, 3, and 4. He will use the scrolls that they have, their scripture, their copy of the Old Testament. And from those scrolls, he will verify and substantiate every claim that he makes about Jesus. Now watch the response, verse 11. Now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than the Jews in Thessalonica, and they were more noble for two reasons. Number one, they received the message with great eagerness. These are humble folk. They're teachable. They're hungry to learn and grow. They know every time they open up their Bible, they have an opportunity to learn something new about God. Well, here's Paul claiming that God is doing something new in this man named Jesus. And so these Bereans are eager to know, is that so? Understand the depth of this eagerness that they feel, that they have. It's similar to the eagerness you have when you're eagerly waiting that important phone call. You know, you, you made an offer on the house and the realtor promised that as soon as they heard anything about whether the offer was accepted or not, they get right back in touch with you. And you haven't heard in a while. And so you're constantly checking your phone to make sure you didn't miss the call, the text, the email. I mean, this is really big news. You're eager to know, did we get the house or not? Or you're waiting to hear from the doctor about the results of the test. Or you just had this interview and you're waiting to see if you got the job or not. And so you're looking at your phone all the time because you know there's some important information coming your way. Something very relevant and necessary for you to know. That's exactly how the Bereans read their Bible. Every time they opened this book, they knew they were going to hear something life-changing. This is God speaking. God speaking personally to them. And they were always eager to hear his voice. But they're more noble, not just because of the eagerness with which they receive the word of God. It says here the last part, and they examine. They examine the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Here's the most amazing thing. 
I mean, Paul is probably the best educated Pharisee in the world at that moment in time. I mean, as a young man, he studied in the land of Israel, the best place to study. He studied under the greatest rabbis of his day. And then he spent three years in the Arabian desert being personally taught by Jesus himself. I mean, the, 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 the town of Berea has never had a teacher of this caliber, this kind of training, this kind of reputation, to have somebody like this standing in their synagogue and teaching them. What an honor! Oh, what a privilege! And yet they wouldn't just take his word for it. Hey, Paul, if everything you say about Jesus is true, we've got to see that truth for ourselves. So they examine. And that word examine has a sense of kind of similar to what we used to see in that TV show, CSI. Remember that team of forensic scientists? They come to the crime scene, they take pictures, they collect all the evidence. But before they draw any conclusions, they gather all that evidence and they bring it back to the lab where everything is carefully examined and tested. And only then did they begin to put the pieces together. Only then did they begin to solve the crime. That's the Bereans. For weeks and weeks and weeks, I mean, this just doesn't happen once. For a long time, Paul and Silas are here in the town of Berea. And every time he gets up to speak and he quotes from Scripture, the very next day, they're the Bereans. They're back in the synagogue. We want to see that for ourselves. So every day for weeks and weeks and weeks, they've been reading and studying. And look at the result. Verse 12. And as a result, because they've read it and studied it for themselves, many of them believed. Max Dupree has a granddaughter who was prematurely, born prematurely. When she was born, she weighed one pound, seven ounces. She was so small that Max says that he could take his wedding ring off, put that ring on the arm of that little girl and slide it clear up to the shoulder. When she was first born, the doctor told Max, uh, it's not looking good. I doubt that she's going to make it. Maybe she'll have a few days at best. And then what complicated the situation was the fact that the father was out of the picture. He'd abandoned the family a month earlier. No dad around. Max says when he came to the hospital the first time to see his granddaughter, he was looking at her through the window of the intensive care unit. Two, two IVs in her navel, one in her foot, a monitor on either side of her chest, a respirator tube in her mouth. So it was so hard to see his granddaughter and wondering what all she was going through. But while he's staring at his granddaughter, the head nurse comes up and talks to him and says, Max, that little girl needs you. If this child's going to have a chance of making it, you've got to be the father. You've got to be the father. Max, that means every day you've got to be here. Every day. Not here. I mean in that room. And Max, very gently, every day, very gently, with the tip of your finger, I just want you to rub her arms, rub her legs. Let her know you're there because of the touch. And Max, while you're touching her, talk to her. Over and over again, let that little girl know how much you love her. Listen, Max, if this little girl's going to live, she's got to hear your voice and she's got to feel your touch. So that's exactly what Max did every day for weeks and weeks and weeks. He stood in that room, took hold of that little girl, touched her, talked to her, let her know over and over again how much he cared about her. And the baby lived. Her name is Zoe, Z-O-E. It's the Greek word for life. And that little girl is alive today because she heard the voice and she felt the touch of somebody who was deeply committed to loving her. Now that's what we're reading here. That's exactly what the Bereans experienced. They didn't just want to learn about Jesus through the words of Paul and Silas. No, we want to meet him for ourselves. 
So every day, for weeks and weeks and weeks, they come back to the synagogue. They would open up their Bible, and slowly and carefully they would listen till they heard the voice of the Messiah speaking through those scriptures. They felt his touch, and they began to realize there's no one more deeply committed to loving them than Jesus, who is God in the flesh. And now, because of Jesus, they could experience a new life. Now, that's why I think the key expression in this whole text, the key phrase is that phrase, Every day, every day they examine the scriptures. Fred Craddock used to put it like this. He said, a lot of us think living for God happens in just one big moment. You know, you got this thousand dollar bill and you say, God, uh, right now this is the sum and total of all I've got. So I'm just going to give it to you. I'm going to lay it on the table and God, it's all yours. And we think because of that one moment, that one decision, that one transaction, now it changes everything. And from that moment on, there's really nothing else for us to do because we've already made our big commitment to God. That's not how life with Jesus works. Life with Jesus is not just a decision you make. We're called to be disciples. We're called to walk with Him and follow Him every day of our lives. So here's how it works. God says, take that $1,000 bill and take it back to the bank and cash it in for $1,000 worth of quarters. And now every day as you walk with Jesus, put 25 cents here, spend 50 cents there, put a quarter here, another quarter there. In other words, it's in those little acts of love and service. It's in those daily times of prayer. It is in your frequent habit where every day you pick up the Bible. 15 minutes in the morning, 10 minutes at lunch break, another 20 minutes at the end of the day. And it's in all those little moments and all those little encounters with the Lord that over time you begin to build and develop this amazing life with Jesus. And every day as you meet with him and you connect with him, you discover something else. Now you're looking at life through a new window. Now you're seeing the truth about this world and the truth about the world to come in a whole new way. Let's pray. God, please do for us what you did for the Bereans. Make us eager to learn more and more about Jesus. God, every day, make us hungry to want to meet with him, to want to connect with him. God, lead us to a deeper, richer life with Christ. And we pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.